Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live 
to call in and tell their local Appleseed Project folks thanks. Thanks for what they're doing, for devoting their time and their efforts, for uh, passing their PCs, for shooting to rifle and standards, for uh, getting a, uh, for volunteering to take uh, an orange hat, or finally receiving their red hat or green hat. I'd like you to call in if you would like to talk about an event that you just had or if you would like to promote an upcoming event. All of those things uh, we'll be glad to uh we'll be glad to put you on the air and talk about, all right? All right, we've got a caller here, A code seven one two, uh you're on the air, you gonna have something to say? I'm just listening in here, Scott. I'm in a bad area. I'll probably come in and out anyway. So just listening in. Thank you, though. All right. Thank you. All right. I'll just put you back in the queue. All right. See how easy that was? Very simple. I don't want to get forced to talk or anything. So, but if you'd like to talk, uh, we'll be glad to take your calls. All right. That's the reason I do the show as a uh, live show, as a calling show. So you have access so that you can call in and get your two cents. I want to thank uh, uh, the uh, folks who do our uh, who do our tech stuff for the Apple Project. That's uh, Scuzzy on the forum, Kirby Foster. He works a lot of hours making sure all the tech stuff is done and not just for uh, for Apple Seed. He worked with Battle Road 2, and while we're talking about Battle Road here, let me take a minute to uh, to pay the bills because uh, Battle Road funds this radio show. The payments for the radio show come right out of my Battle Road account. <clears throat> and Battle Road is running uh, several courses in the, uh, the next month, in the month of October. We have uh, the Combat Carving Course. It's a two-day course on the November 9th and 10th, and this is going to uh, give you the skills to run your carbine uh, as it was meant to run. With the uh, millions of carbines that were bought during uh, this last year, if you'd like to know how to actually run your carbine, then uh, we'll be glad to have you at the course. That's November 9th and 10th. It will be by uh, Staff Sergeant John Hawes. He's actually one of our own Appleseed uh, instructors, Bolt Gun 71 on form. And John has taught this course to over 5,000 American service members. He's been teaching them uh, the combat carving course uh, after his deployments to Iran and, uh, I mean, to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Then he went deployed to Iran, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. <clears throat> this is a course uh, developed by the the Army with input from Delta and then tweaked by John himself uh, through numerous engagements with uh, willing and unwilling uh, jihadis. In, uh, <clears throat> John isn't just, uh, he didn't just uh, go to a bunch of other schools and uh, then turn around and try and sell you the stuff from them. Uh, this is the stuff that uh, currently being used, and it's the most logical way to operate your carbine. <clears throat> uh, 
That is November 9th and 10th. Uh, November 11th through the 15th is a five-day precision rifle sniper course. Uh, this is also being taught by John Hawes, and uh, this course is designed to teach you how to use your centerfire rifle to make shots at distance. So it requires a centerfire rifle and uh, good optics, 500 rounds of ammunition, and it's going to uh, cover everything from setting your rifle up, uh, wind, wind determination. Uh, there's a lot of, of wind determination during the the course. Uh, you know, we were being asked every time we turn around, what's the wind, where is it from, what's the direction, what's its value, what's your correction, in order to teach you to rapidly understand the importance of wind in making the shot at distance. There was a solid day of range determination. That was a classroom uh, in the morning followed by uh, a day of determining range uh, using your eye and then using your scopes, using your mill dot scopes and, and determining range very accurately. I thought that the, the course was, was pretty much worth uh, the cost of admission just for this day, <clears throat> just for that one day. Uh, then we'll spend a day at uh, making shots on targets of undetermined distance, until you determine them, uh, from, uh, from about 100 to 600 meters. You'll be given the targets. You'll have to determine what range they are. You'll have to make the corrections and then make a hit on the target. You'll be gathering uh, cold bore data daily for your rifle, and that usually starts out with the, uh, you know, with the scope drill. That's where you, uh, you make a shot on the target, and you're given a series of corrections uh, that you put into your optics, so you end up shooting into a box. Your first shot, you make a couple of corrections. Your next shot is high to the right. You make your corrections. Next shot is low to the right. Make your corrections low to the left. Next corrections high to the left. Last correction puts you back in the same hole. Just to make sure that your scope is functioning correctly. <clears throat> and uh, then there's a uh, stress shoot. There's a day where you're you're shooting under stress at different targets. You're moving. There will be camouflage and movement discussion uh, as well as well as uh, uh, close in shooting. Uh, John talked about how uh, there was no average uh, combat engagement. It was from 20 meters to 1,100 meters of the experience. There was no average one. There wasn't a distance that the engagements kept coming at. All right, they were all different distances. That means that you need to be able to engage your targets at close range uh, with your rifle. And uh, we spent uh, a morning doing that. That's making these shots from 50, 75, and 100 meters and making rapid shots with your rifle at close range. <clears throat> So it's a five-day course. Uh, the cost is $500, and I'm going to tell you right now that uh, for both the courses, the carving course is only $250. The precision rifle sniper course is $500. Uh, this is going to – both of these courses are less than half of what you'll pay uh, at any 
comparable course. The reason our prices are low is not because we uh, we don't think that our instruction or our facility or our instructors are, are as good as anybody else's. <clears throat> Uh, we fully believe they're as good and better. The reason it's offered low is because we're a new school. We're trying to build up clientele. So take advantage of the fact that we are a new school and take advantage of the fact that we're, we're going to offer these courses this year. I don't know about next year, but we're going to offer them this year uh, at about half the price of what you would normally pay for a course of this type. Uh, I was looking at the courses uh, yesterday again. And uh, the comparable courses are about 250 a day, uh, meaning that the the five-day course at a lot of places is about two grand. The precision rifle sniper course is not designed to make you a uh, an operator or a uh, you know a delta sniper or anything like that. It's designed to teach you how to competently use your centerfire rifle with optics at distance to make the shots and. Uh, you're going to learn a lot in this course, and it's going to uh, it's going to make you a much shooter, okay? And it's going to be at half the cost. So how can you beat that? <clears throat> All right, and then uh, finally, uh, on the 18th and the 23rd, we're running another course. This is a course developed by uh, another couple of uh, our instructors up in uh, New York, Katie Ann up in New York. Uh, started out uh, a school up there called Squad School. And uh, the 18th to the 23rd is going to be a, a five-day squad school. And the whole idea behind this is to give folks uh, who maybe don't have a lot of military experience or don't have uh, like a combat MOS or anything like that, give them a chance to, to learn how to work together as a unit. And uh, this is going to cover... Uh, patrol techniques, uh, including night movements and night patrols, right? which is one of the most trickiest things you'll do uh, with a unit is to work at night and run night ops. All right? Night ops are very tricky. They're very dangerous. Uh, it'll also include uh, a couple of days' instruction on survival, evasion, and escape, how to make shelters, how to build fires, hand and arm signals, how to move together as a group. There'll be uh, a section on basic rifle marksmanship, and it's going to teach you how to work together as a group. You're welcome to bring a group with you if you'd like to come to this as a group. And we'll be glad to have you as a group. Uh, if you had, and any other courses that we're offering, the squad school or the uh, combat carbine or any of the other specialized courses that we run, we'll be more than glad to, uh, to give you guys individualized private instruction. We do that on occasion. And if you want to bring the group that you're working with, uh, if you've got a group of uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten folks that is your own personal group and you want to work together as a group and receive this instruction as a group, we'll be glad to give it to you, all right? To the uh, 23rd, and this will be $500 for the uh, five days. Once again, uh, you can have a group of five, six, seven, eight people. They can all be really good shots. But if they don't know how to work together as a group, they don't know how to move together, if they don't know how to support each other by fire and stuff like that, then they're not nearly as effective as you would like them to be. All right? Uh, we have some additional courses coming up that aren't on the schedule, but we'll have some in 
December. We'll have uh, a course there. We also have, it will probably be the second week of December. We've got a private course the first week. And then in the spring, we, uh, it'll likely be in the, the end of the winter. In February, uh, we have the Combat Tracking School. And uh, that's a five-day course to teach you the skills and techniques needed uh, to begin your path on becoming a uh, becoming a tracker and using those skills uh, in a combat tracking fashion. And that's how to uh, how do you determine tracks? How to determine the, how to determine the number of folks in a group? Uh, how do you determine what weapons they're carrying, uh, what their direction of travel is, what they're doing. Uh, this is a very uh, invaluable class. This will be taught by Sergeant First Class John Hurt, uh, who is a, a former uh, Special Forces A-team leader and was head of the United States Army Combat Tracking School at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. All right? And uh, once again, this is a class that I'm really, I'm going to be, I'll be taking the class myself. It's something I've been looking forward to for quite a while. If you'd like to know more about any of these courses, you can uh, get more information by going to www.battleroadusa.com. Battleroadusa.com, all right? And, uh, if you uh, want more information than that, you're welcome to message me at RWVA Range Scout, a one word lowercase, at to fill you in. <clears throat> All right, that's the uh, <clears throat> that's the upcoming uh, courses for Battle Road. Uh, I'll remind you too that uh, we have the uh, Running Gun will be uh, showing back up in April of 2014, four and a half mile looping trail, eight shooting stations, and there may be more by then, or, and then uh, uh, for rifle and pistol, and then uh, a ton of different obstacles uh, between each station. And we have a lot of requests from folks that they want more, they want more obstacles, more things, all right? We've got, uh, we've got a slew of stuff now, but they want more, and they shall get it, all right? And that'll be in April, the Zombie Destruction Running Gun. Okay, I've got another caller here, uh, area code uh, 901. Hey, Scout, this is uh, Sticks from uh, the Memphis area. How are you tonight? Well, hey, how you doing? Man, I am great. I've been uh, wanting to call in to tell you, tell you some news, actually. Um, I think I told you this uh, in, a, in a text message, but... Um, as you know, I'm I'm a great fan of Appleseed, and uh, a few weeks back attended my second one. Um, I promote Appleseed all the time on the podcast that I'm part of, and just wanted to let you know that not only did uh, did I get my rifleman patch, but uh, one of my co-hosts also did the weekend before. Well, that's excellent. Hey, listen, make sure give everybody the uh, uh, the name and the address of the. Uh uh, of the podcast that you're doing. Hey, um, uh, on, on Facebook, it is Politics and Guns Podcast, or you can go to www.politicsandguns.com. Um, 
don't let the politics part scare you. Uh, 90% of any politics we talk about on there are uh, are Second Amendment related, um, and we we have a lot of gun talk on there. Um, we've been just uh, very pumped about the apple seed thing. I actually uh, took an orange hat and had just signed up for my first uh, my first shoot where I'm going to go as an orange hat. Well, congratulations. Well, I'm really excited about that because I knew that you had uh, that you'd gotten your patch. I didn't know, or maybe I forgot that your that your buddy had gotten his. But I knew that you'd gotten yours, and I was really hoping that you were going to end up taking a hat. So, well, congratulations, because most of the folks listening understand that that's an accomplishment. But uh, if you don't, let me tell you right off the bat, man, that that shooting to rifleman standards is not an easy thing. Uh, I've got a lot of folks that that like to tell me uh, that it is, or they like to they like to tell me that that shooting to uh, to four minutes, or shooting at 25 meters is no big deal, but if, if you think that's the case, take your rifle, uh, go out to the range, put a postage stamp up, and then uh, back yourself off to 82 feet, and put uh, 10 rounds into that postage stamp in 60 seconds. Let's make it 55. Put 10 rounds into that postage stamp in 55 seconds while you're changing positions and you're... Uh, uh, changing out magazines, and uh, see if you can do that. Uh, I'm not talking about the big uh, the big uh, ship to Hong Kong and Brazil postage stamps. I'm talking about the old three-cent stamp, the one-inch square. This is a lot harder than folks think, and uh, and it takes a good bit of skill to do it. And my congratulations to you, sir. Well, thank you very much. And one last thing, Scout, is... Uh, on the podcast, I, I want you to let you know that the time that I had you on the show, we ended up making it a, a two-part episode because of the length of it. That is still one of our uh, most highly uh, downloaded podcast uh, episodes yet. So people are uh, love the history show, history lesson that you gave them, and uh, we've got a lot of fans of Appleseed that listen. So, hey, I appreciate what you're doing, and keep up the good work. Well, thanks. Listen, uh, we were talking about uh, uh, about me coming back on. I'll be glad to anytime you guys uh, anytime you anytime you guys would like to do. I'd love to come on. I'm wait, waiting to hear from you on that. And when you when you're ready to come on, I definitely uh, want to talk about the subjects that we we talked about talking. You know, about becoming a rifleman and what it takes to live the life of a rifleman. So I'll be more than glad to. Well, listen, thanks for calling in. But more than that, thanks for taking the time and effort to get on the line, to hone your skills, to shoot your rifle standards, and then a really big thanks, an orange hat, and and then taking donating your time and your effort that you could be you could be using anywhere else. You could be sitting in front of the TV watching the ball game or NASCAR, or you could be uh, going fishing or, or whatever, spending time with your family, and instead. You're going to uh, get on the line with other Americans, and you're going to show them how to shoot uh, to rifleman standards. Listen, you uh, you have my my congratulations and my thanks for that. Well, hey, again, I appreciate what you're doing. If I didn't believe in Project Appleseed, I wouldn't waste my time. But 
this is something that I'm a hundred percent wholehearted behind. So again, thanks. Well, well, thank you, sir. And I'll get back to you, and we'll uh, we'll set up a date for the uh, for the next uh, talk. All right. Very good. Have a good night. All right. Uh, you too. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, I do uh, I do talk with different people pretty often. Uh, just about anywhere that they will that they will take me because I'm always trying to to get the word out about uh, apple seed and about what we're doing and why we're doing it and why it's important. And uh, and so I'm um, I'm I do a lot of different radio and podcasts and uh, and articles and stuff like that and and I'm not any special person, okay? You could be doing the same thing, and I hope that each and every one of you folks are, because every person that uh, that is a part of Appleseed. No matter what you're doing in Appleseed, you're not just a, an instructor or uh, an admin person or an attendee. You're also an Appleseed rep. You're also the Appleseed uh, uh, the Appleseed Promotions Department. You're the folks that we depend on to get the information out. Uh, there is, I, I'm sure that everybody thinks that there is some, they're always thinking that it's, that it's somebody else's job. That's the one point I'm trying to make. It's somebody else is going to do it. Somebody else is going to do the promotion. Somebody's going to be talking to somebody somewhere. I don't have to worry about it because, because somebody is going to do it. Somebody's going to talk to somebody and tell them or somebody's going to do a uh, an interview or a podcast or somebody's going to go and talk to the DAR or the SAR or stuff like that. And, and, some people are. We need everybody to do this. We need you to do this. All right? And uh, I can guarantee you it's a lot easier than standing in ranks and uh, catching a walnut chunk size of lead in the days when there was no uh, life flight or antibiotics or anesthetic, it's a lot easier than uh, catching around in the arm or leg and, and having to get a bunch of guys to hold you down while some guy with a dirty, filthy old wood saw saws off that arm or leg. <clears throat> it's a lot safer, right? And that's the whole reason we do it. Doing it because... This is the easy way. This is the the easy battle to fight. You got uh, we got hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of folks that you see all the time uh, out on the internet saying well, they can they can have my gun when they take it from my cold dead hands. And you have all of the people that are you know yelling, "Come and take it." That's good. That's good. But but why? Why let it get to that point? Why let it get to a dirty, nasty point uh, that that is full of pain and horror and bloodshed? 
uh, I don't know how many folks have. I, I can guarantee you right now, the folks, the folks that are yelling this the loudest, have not seen people uh, crawling around in a gunfight, crying for their mothers and their fathers, and screaming and wailing. The, the romantic ideas of the gunfights that you see on TV where there's a whole bunch of gunfighting and then when it stops, everybody's not moving. That's not the way that it is. It's like a nasty, seething pile of screaming and yelling and crying folks. There's nothing romantic about it. The reason that we do this is because our founding forefathers, uh, they went through that for us. They went through that for us so that we would not have to do it. They already did that. We don't have to do that. We have the documents that created this nation that protect us from that. We just have to make sure that we are protecting those documents and making sure that our representatives understand the meanings of those documents. We have to tell them if need be. We're doing this job of Appleseed, fighting the, the soft war so that we don't have to fight the hard war. Now, I can also tell you another thing, and and you can hear Fred uh, talking about this, too, quite a bit. And uh, I'm sure if you've read uh, some of the stories in Shotgun News over the last uh, eight or ten years, you've probably heard this many times. And that is that the folks that uh, are uh, proclaiming the most about defending their uh, their selves with their firearms are probably going to be the last folks that you see out there doing it. Time and effort to fight the soft war. How in the world can you honestly believe that they're going to involve themselves in the hard one? All right. Well, since we're talking about the hard wars, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the Battle of Kings Mountain. We're talking about that because that's the Battle of October. And uh, we're going to start it off with a little bit a little bit of, of history beforehand. We'll start off with, uh, with Clinton uh, leaving from Philadelphia because that's, that is how they started. And the Battle of Kings Mountain is very important because the Battle of Kings Mountain was actually a turning point in the revolution. Uh, and it was another major battle, although the battle in itself was, was, was actually rather small. The impact that it had was great. The, uh, and this kind of all begins back in... Uh, in 1778, the Battle of Kings Mountain was, was fought in October on the 7th. 
in eight, in uh, 1780. But we'll move back to uh, 1778. Uh, Lieutenant General Clinton has uh, withdrawn from Philadelphia to New York. This is in 1778. He was the commanding the commander of British forces in North America. He shifted his forces down uh, from the northeast to the south. And once the once uh, Washington and his forces had been pushed into the west, uh, and the the battles uh, in the northeast in uh, New York and around Boston and uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia. Once those had all been fought, uh, the the focus of the war shifted to the south. Uh, in uh, December, British foot troops ended up capturing Savannah, Georgia. And uh, then in the spring of 1780, they laid siege to Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina. Now, when the city fell in May of 1780, Clinton had succeeded in capturing almost the, the bulk of the Continental Army's southern forces. Uh, and when we when we say the bulk, you've got to remember that the the Americas then had uh, uh, roughly two million folks, and uh, these were made up of, uh, of patriots and loyalists and fence-sitters and folks out in the West who weren't really involved, folks in the far South who at first weren't involved, and uh, the, the bulk of the army there was just several thousand troops that were captured, then uh, raiding from uh, the city. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Talton defeated another retreating American force at the Battle of Waxhaws. And uh, this was, uh, uh, if you saw the the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, you saw one of the, uh, one of the sinister actors uh, there that uh, that Gibson ended up fighting against the, his main uh, uh, antagonist there was based uh, pretty loosely on Bannister Tar- Tarleton. Uh, following the surrender of Charleston, uh, South Carolina, on May 12, 1780, uh, uh, Clinton's forces occupied the city. And then uh, six days later, he ended up dispatching uh, General Charles Cornwallis, who was Lord Charles Cornwallis, with 2,500 men to subdue the South Carolina backcountry. And that's uh, uh, all of the areas to the to the west and south of uh, uh, Charleston. Uh, advancing from the city, Cornwallis's forces crossed the Santee River and moved toward Camden. Now, on the, on the way there, he learned from the local loyalists that the South Carolina governor, John Rutledge, was uh, trying to escape to North Carolina with a force of about 350 men. 
uh, you know, this was a, a large group of the backcountry guys who had who had managed to escape capture in uh, Charleston. This group was led by Colonel Abraham Buford, and the, the unit consisted of the 7th Virginia Regiment, two companies of the 2nd Virginia, 40 light dragoons, and two six-pound guns. Now, Buford had been ordered south at first to aid in the siege of Charleston, but he turned back after learning that the city had fallen. And as he was retreating back toward North Carolina, Buford, who actually had a pretty good lead, of course, with Cornwallis at the time, and, and Cornwallis, uh, figuring that his column was going to be too slow to catch uh, Buford's force, Cornwallis dispatched a mobile force uh, under Colonel Bannister Tarleton to run down Buford's men. And uh, that consisted mostly of Bannister Tarleton's uh, uh, cavalry. They mounted infantry and the dragoons. Uh, Tarleton's command was 270 men, which was drawn from the 17th Dragoons, the uh, Loyalist British Legion, and these are uh, these aren't British forces from England. These are Loyalist uh, colonialists, and a three-pound gun. Now, riding hard, Tarleton's men. Uh, managed to make over 100 miles in just 54 hours, which is which is pretty fast. And Buford, had, he was he heard that Tarleton was very quickly uh, gaining on him. He sent Rutledge ahead towards Hillsboro with a, a small escort. And reaching Rugley's Mill on the uh, mid-morning of May the 29th. Tarleton learned that the Americans had camped there the previous night and were only uh, around about 20 miles ahead of him. So pressing on hard, the British column caught up with Buford about 3 o'clock, about six miles south of the border uh, near a town called Waxhaws. <clears throat> Tarleton's men <clears throat> caught up to the rear guard and defeated the American rear guard then Charlton sent a message to Buford, and uh, he told Buford that he had a lot more men than he had, and he was trying to he was trying to to scare the American commander, trying to bluff him in to surrender. But Buford, who delayed replying uh, while his men were trying to get into a more favorable favorable position, uh, once then. Once they, once the, once his men had gotten into uh, what he considered to be a good defensive position, Buford replied, "Sir, I reject your proposals and shall defend myself to the last extremity." Now, in order to, in order, Buford's idea for meeting the attack was he had deployed his infantry uh, into a single line with a with a, a, a small reserve, or, you know, a ready reserve to the rear of that line. Now, opposite, Tarleton moved directly to assault the American position without waiting for his entire command to arrive. <clears throat> Once he'd gotten uh, uh, a large enough group of his uh, mounted infantry 
he immediately threw himself into the attack. Now, with the British Dragoons uh, hacking with their sabers and, and driving into the, the single line of uh, colonist militia, the Americans began to surrender while a, a good many others fled the field. you got to remember, at this time, it doesn't sound like a lot of difference. Personally, uh, for me, it wouldn't be a lot of difference, I don't think. But, but to a lot of folks, this was uh, the, the mounted uh, cavalry or mounted infantry. You know, the folks riding a horse was still a, a, a pretty scary thing for the guys to face. And they were just militia. They weren't uh, pardon colonial uh, troops. They were still militia. That means they they may not have ever fought before. A lot of them. They may have come in right off the farm, grabbed their rifles, and and got mustered into the militia. This may have been their first engagement for many of them. And Charlton broke the line. He broke the line. Uh, a lot of the guys were surrendering. A lot of guys. The other guys were taking off running, uh, there was a a written account by one of the Patriot militiamen, Dr. Robert Brownfield. He claimed that Buford waved a white flag to signal the surrender of his forces and uh, and that he called for quarter. But right as he called for quarter, that someone had shot Tarleton's horse, not Tarleton, but they shot the horse, and the horse fell down, uh, and the and Tarleton was thrown and pinned under the horse, and uh, the Tarleton's forces were the and his main body of force was was arriving right at that moment. They thought that their commander had been shot uh, under a white flag. And they went nuts. And uh, the the loyalist forces, instead of instead of accepting the surrender and and things calming down, they all renewed the attack. Now they're renewing the attack, the attack, as Buford's men are laying down their arms. So you have the one side that's that is surrendering, you have the other side that thinks that their commander was just shot under a white flag and and they've gone uh, they've gone savage on it and uh, and they begin slaughtering the Americans, including the wounded uh, and they were going from man to man uh, killing all of the killing the unarmed men, killing the wounded now Brownfield in his account of this he he doesn't come straight out and say it, but he insinuates that the continuation of the hostilities was actually encouraged by Charlton, who, who did get back off the ground. Now, other folks, other Patriot sources claim that Charlton ordered the renewed attack as because he did not want with, a, you know, with three or four hundred prisoners. Uh, he wanted this. He was he was the the cavalry, the mobile arm there. He didn't want to have to babysit prisoners. He wanted to continue uh, to press on and uh, to try and capture 
the governor. Look, regardless of what of of what may or may not have happened, the the, the butchery continued uh, with the American troops, including the wounded and and the captives. In the report after the battle, Tartan said that his men, believing him struck down, continued the fight with a vindictive asperity not easily restrained. Now, after about 15 minutes of fighting, the battle wound down. And only about 100 Americans, including Buford, succeeded in escaping the massacre. Now, the, the defeat at Waxhaws cost Buford 113 killed, 115 wounded, 53 captured. British losses, on the other hand, were light, which is which is not uh, surprising in situations like this. Uh, anytime one side has the other one on the run, uh, their losses are going to be light while they inflict massive casualties on the folks that are surrendering or running. Uh, uh, Tarleton lost uh, five killed and 12 wounded. So... In the action there, the Battle of Waxhaws, uh, Arn Tarleton, quite a few nicknames, including uh, Bloody Ban and uh, Ban the Butcher. And uh, in addition, uh, when we're going to hear about this in just a few minutes, uh, began the term Tarleton's Quarter, which uh, very quickly came to mean that there would be no mercy given. There would be no quarter given. Now, during battles like the American Revolutionary War, they 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 quite often did get bloody. But but normally, fighting to the bloody bitter end, they're fly, they're they're fighting until one side or the other sees that one side or the other had gained a decided advantage. And one side or the other has the upper hand. And once that, once that it becomes apparent, then usually the other side will surrender. And they, it's not a complicated thing. They would usually take their rifles and just hold their rifles upside down to indicate they were surrendering. <clears throat> or they would kneel. They would kneel down with their rifles. And this would indicate that they were no longer considered themselves to be combatants. And, uh, and, the the general uh, rule then was once a man has has signaled his surrender, then the com- the combat at least individual combat with them is over, and uh, and they are to be given quarter. They're to be shown mercy in any conflict that is a civil type conflict, a civil war, where you have people that know each other that are fighting. And it's always one of the most bloody and most hateful types of warfare. Because they're not just fighting about an idea. They're fighting, in many cases, to correct past wrongs, either either real or perceived. And uh, those get very, very bloody. <clears throat> uh the defeat became a rallying cry in the region, and and it led a lot of folks to flock to the Patriot cause because 
of the of the the way that that Charlton handled this. Now, and among those were were numerous local militias, and particularly those from the over the Appalachian Mountains. And these guys are going to end up playing a key role at the Battle of Kings Mountain just a few months later in October. Uh, let me check the. Uh, okay, I just want to make sure that I didn't have anybody waiting in the <clears throat> the uh, the queue there. Uh, for a minute about uh, about the folks involved in this, because we were just talking about the the over mountain men in the Battle of Kings Mountain. Now <clears throat> the uh, and a lot of people think that when you think of the American Revolutionary War, people think of Boston and New York and Philadelphia and New Jersey. They don't realize that uh, that almost the majority of the American Revolutionary War, uh, a great deal of the battles and the most significant battles, and it was finally won in the South. And uh, and these particular forces that we're talking about, uh, in fighting in North Carolina, were folks that uh, actually had lived in Tennessee and Virginia. And they lived over the mountains uh, from the, from North Carolina. <clears throat> Five and a half years after the American Revolution began on April 19, 1775, and uh, we all know, uh, all of the Appleseed folks know the story of this because this is a story that that we tell at all the Appleseeds. We talk about the the green at Lexington, uh, about the the folks who fought at the North Bridge in Concord, and about Battle Road, uh, the battle that was fought all the way back to Boston and then the beginning of the siege in Boston. Now, nearly a 1,000 miles away uh, from there, another group of Patriot militia were mustering in North Carolina to fight for liberty. These are the over-mountain men. Uh, In 1870, these guys had gathered together from the, the hills and valleys of western North Carolina, including what today is now northeast Tennessee, and from the Holston Valley, uh, which is actually in southwest Virginia. And they joined forces with the Patriot militiamen from the Yadkin Valley and uh, Piedmont of North Carolina, from South Carolina and Georgia as well. And they were... <coughs> attempting to surprise the invading British Army. During two weeks in the fall of 1780, uh, the southern backcountry uh, over-mountain boys uh, had crossed the Appalachian Mountain barriers there, and they tracked down a detachment of the British Army under the command of Lord, General, uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis, General Lord Charles Cornwallis. And... Uh, after an all-night ride through a cold, rainy October night, 
these guys uh, surrounded their loyalist prey atop a small rise near the North Carolina Carolina line. And in the battle that followed, these guys won a decisive victory that changed the course of the Revolutionary War. And that is the Battle of King's Mountain. Uh, once the once the war had moved from the northeast, from New York and Philadelphia, once it had moved into the south, uh, the British authorities were pretty much convinced that that many, if not all, of the citizens uh, in this region were were still loyal to King George the Third. That they weren't like the northeastern rebels and uh, the the folks that were causing trouble there, they they were pretty sure that most of the folks there in the South uh, would were loyalists and that they would fight alongside of the invading British forces against any of the Patriot rebels. And after Charlestown fell, uh, Clinton ordered uh, uh, Lord Cornwallis to march the army inland to march it through the Carolinas and into Virginia. And uh, once he had given these orders to Cornwallis, then Clinton took on board ship and went back to New York. Cornwallis's army, meanwhile, began moving uh, in a northern direction across South Carolina towards Charlotte, and uh, Major Patrick Ferguson was protecting Cornwallis's left flank during the advance. And uh, Ferguson, of course, was a soldier's soldier, a very determined soldier, very disciplined, and uh, he was a brilliant military strategist and an experienced field commander. And uh, and he was generally regarded as the best marksman uh, in the whole British Army. Uh, when, as they were as they were going through the uh, uh, through the back country of Carolina, Ferguson had he had, he had a lot of success in recruiting colonists to join his army and to fight for the British as loyalists. Uh, during his advance into the upcountry of the uh, uh, area of South Carolina, uh, Ferguson, though, was continually harassed by the North Carolina militia uh, under the commands of uh, Colonel Isaac Shelby and Colonel Charles McDowell. Shelby's backwoods patriots were uh, were very uh, they were not regular soldiers. They didn't fight like regular soldiers. You know, they fought like uh, I guess what you call like guerrilla fighters. They fought uh, Indian style is what they called it then. They would uh, they would wait. They would strike from ambush. You know, yelling and screaming with uh, with like war hoops and. And once they had attacked and inflicted uh, the initial damage, then they would take off. They would retreat and force the uh, the 
the British forces pursue them through the, the woods in like a running engagement. And, you know, this is never going to be favorable to, to the folks that are being attacked. Because if you set this up right, you make your initial ambush, you know, you fire into them, and normally it has great effect because you're able to do it pretty quickly, uh, fairly close range. You take off running, they start chasing you, and you just, as you're retreating, uh, you continually set up engagements to engage them, not while they're set up, not while they're all stopped and in line and ready to fire, but while they're running and they're not aiming, then you fire, and then they stop to engage you and you take off, and you just repeat this over and over, and uh, and it's very effective. Uh, and you can do it without uh, without a lot of loss, which is what you have to do when you don't have uh, uh, when you have a large army. Uh, Ferguson, of course, he couldn't stand this militia, and uh, he called them the, the backwater men or the barbarians and. And uh, a lot of other names, including the, the dregs of mankind. Now, in mid-August, Ferguson pursued the rebel vice, uh, uh, forces there, chasing Shelby and McDowell's men uh, northward into North Carolina, as far as Gilbert Town, which is which it really is. There, there is no Gilbert Town now. It's a, it's a vanished community that's pretty close to. Uh, Rutherford town today and fought Ferguson stopped his pursuit there uh, near Gilbert town but Shelby's men and McDowell's men continued riding northwest they they retreated back all the way back over the Blue Ridge and the Appalachians to the safety of their their hometowns and their home areas there uh, included over mountain region uh, in the valleys of the Watauga and the Holston Rivers. <clears throat> and uh, and now comes the the big problem for Ferguson. Ferguson got so angry that he had a message and had it sent across the mountains, the over-mountain men. And here's what it said. It said, if you do not desist your opposition to the British arms, I shall march this army over the mountains. I'll hang your leaders. I'll lay waste to your country with fire and sword. Now, who knows what, what Shelby and Isaac's men might have done if Ferguson hadn't said this, I'm sure that they would have continued to fight. That's within their blood. Uh, they were Americans continue to fight. However, this was like throwing gasoline on the fire. He was telling them he's going to come into their communities with their wives and children and homes. He's going to burn it to the ground. He was going to hang the leaders. He was going to lay waste to it with sword and fire. Well, now there's only one thing to do, and that is to go and attack them to make sure they don't make it to your to your homes. And that's what they did. 
uh, Shelby and Isaac, uh, they call for a mustering of militia units from throughout the Over Mountain region and beyond. And it wasn't, uh, you got to remember, it wasn't hard. I'm sure they had copies of the letters that they were taking out to the folks saying, look, here's what he's saying. Either we go there or he comes here. And, uh, and now you're talking about mountain men, the folks that, uh, that end up becoming the, you know, the, the mountain men of Tennessee and, and, and these were rough men. They mustered the men from the Yadkin Valley in Wilkes and Surrey's counties. They called for a muster on September 25th at Sycamore Shoals, uh, which is close to you know, Fort Watauga today in, near Elizabethtown, Tennessee. Shelby bought about 240 militia. Uh, Colonel Sevier bought, brought uh, right about the same amount. Campbell uh, arrived with about 400 Virginians. Uh, half from his cousin's command. Uh, the Virginians came on a two-day ride from their muster along Wolf Creek uh, uh, near what today is Abingdon, Virginia. Uh, 160 men from Burke County under the command of Dow had taken refuge in the Overmountain region after the earlier skirmishes with Ferguson. Now, growing day by day to uh, a little over a thousand men in number. The militiamen prepared to cross the mountains again, and they were committed to pursuing and defeating the man who who had been threatened to invade their homeland, which is Ferguson. Now, while the militiamen were waiting for uh, for everyone to arrive, they started getting ready for the cross-country campaign and the battle they expected to find uh, when they got there. They tended to their horses. They they mended their clothing, their equipment, sharpened their swords. They cleaned their rifles. Uh, they made beef jerky. They they actually mined lead uh, from the hillsides around there uh, for making ammunition. Uh, at Sycamore Shoals, once they got there, they received from one Mary Patton 500 pounds of gunpowder that she had made at her own powder mill there, 500 pounds of gunpowder. Then on the 26th of September, uh, this group of 1,000 militiamen headed south for Sycamore Shoals. Now, most of the men were on horseback, but, but, you know, not, not more than a few, not quite a few walked. This wasn't really an army, right? To not like, you would think of it as an army. It was a group of militiamen. It was a thousand, uh, it was a thousand hill men. And uh, well, they were all volunteers. Nobody was getting paid. Each of the guys expected uh, for this to to be a short thing, you know, not more than a couple or a few weeks before they returned from the battle and went back to work at uh, you know, doing their chores, their farming, and everything else. And the militia didn't follow the strict military protocol. They they elected their commanders by, you know, by vote, by deciding among themselves who they thought uh, who they thought would be best. It wasn't decided by somebody else or, or by somebody, the amount of time somebody had been in the militia or something like that. It was... But by the guy, they just said, uh, you know, we, we trust so-and-so. We respect so-and-so. We want him to lead us. 
And that's how he became their leader, their commander. Uh, these guys were all skilled hunters, all skilled shooters. They were all fighters. But what they what they what they had together in fighting, they really lacked as far as the discipline of a military unit. And uh, for for that reason alone, the British military, you know, the the best army in the world at the time, usually dismissed any threat uh, from a fighting force that was composed of the volunteer militia. Now, on the morning of the 27th, uh, the militia forces began to ascend the mountain barrier. They were crossing back toward the east uh, across the uh, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains here. Now, the men were following the Yellow Mountain Road. This is also known as uh, as Bright's Trace. And you can still find it there in the mountains. Now, it was a little more than a horse path and, and, and most probably uh, was a trail that had been made and stomped down by by buffalo uh, and then later used by Indians as a footpath across the mountain and the militiamen followed it and uh, when they arrived at the saddle in the ridge at the Yellow Mountain Gap near today's uh, Rhone Mountain they found themselves in a meadow standing in snow called as Shoe Mouth Deep the men fell in the formation the leaders took a head count they discovered that two of uh, Sevier's men were missing. The loyalty of these men to King George was suspected by most, and many were afraid that the two Tories had deserted so that they could dash ahead, warn Ferguson that the militia men were coming over the mountains. And uh, but they had no choice; I mean, they they had to continue on and. Uh, they uh, ended up descending from the mountains and uh, eventually made camp along Roaring Creek. Now, over the next two days, the men proceeded across the plateau of the Blue Ridge Mountains, arriving at Gillespie Gap along the edge of the Blue Ridge, the site of today's Museum of North Carolina Minerals on the Blue Ridge Parkway. I've been there. It's a nice place. From there, they could see the Catawba Valley. Uh, there was opening up before them. They could look down in the, into the Kadava. It's a beautiful vista there, too. Now, knowing that the that, that there were two good paths that descended onto the, the face of the mountains, the leaders made a, a a pretty bold decision. They decided to split their forces, which was really pretty risky at the time because the 1,000 men together you know, were, were, were a pretty formidable force, but uh, but splitting them up into two uh, lesser groups was a potentially fatal decision. However, the two parties ended up splitting up, and uh, uh, and they descended the face of the Blue Ridge separately. And they were reunited two days later at Quaker's Meadows. Now, that's near today's uh, town of Morganton. Now, of course, they did this because they didn't want, like I said, it was risky. But at the same time, they were afraid that what if, uh, what if while they were going down one trail, 
it just so happened that Ferguson's forces went past them on the other trail. If they did that, then Ferguson's forces, if they got past them, then Ferguson's forces could get back over into their uh, into their homeland there and, and wreak havoc before they could do anything. But they managed to make it down the trails, and Ferguson's forces, they didn't uh, encounter them. Uh, the Patriot militia, they suspected that Ferguson and his army were in Gilberttown. They didn't know for sure, but that's what they suspected they probably were. So they, they kept heading south, but two days of hard rain forced them to eventually make camp. Now, in the morning of the 4th, the men continued their march toward Gilberttown, Gilbert but they soon learned that Ferguson had already left there. The, the two guys that had come up missing when they did their head count, they had indeed been traitors. And they'd gotten to the Loyalist camp ahead of uh, the Overmountain men. And they told Ferguson about the Overmountain men, you know, coming on the trail after them. <clears throat> Ferguson, of course, immediately recognized his dire predicament and then began retreating towards Charlotte as fast as possible. He was trying to catch up to Cornwallis's uh, army. Cornwallis's army was encamped in Charlotte. He was in, Ferguson was uh, south of this fort. He was guarding Cornwallis' left flank. He was trying to hightail it back so that he would have uh, Cornwallis' force to his rear. Uh, but on October 6th, Ferguson sent a message to Cornwallis advising the general of his plans and asking for reinforcements. He wrote, uh, I'm on my march towards you by a road leading from Cherokee Ford north of Kings Mountain. Three or four hundred good soldiers, part dragoons, would finish this business. Something must be done soon. This is their last push in the quarter, etc. Patrick Ferguson. The Overland men and the Carolina Patriots had banded together at this point. They were pursued Ferguson relying now on scouts to report his whereabouts. These were mounted scouts that, uh, you know, were racing uh, racing along Ferguson's path and reporting his position. <clears throat> the force of Patriot militiamen rode hard all day on the 6th to reach Cowpens, and, uh, and Cowpens would actually be the site of a uh, future battle that would which is called the Battle of, of Cowpens, uh, where partisans from South Carolina joined with the mountain men, uh, along with some 30 Georgia militiamen. Now, at this point, the entire party of the, uh, of the Patriot militiamen had grown to 1,800, and uh, there wasn't a single continental soldier or officer among them. Now, learning from scouts that Ferguson was was gaining, was near the safety of Charlotte, the Patriots knew they had to move very quickly to overtake it. The leaders formed a smaller group, choosing from the 1,800 folks. They chose the 900 best marksmen mounted on the 900 best horses. And at 9 o'clock that night, uh, this force, the, the specially chosen 900 group of 900 militia, rode out from the cow pens into a cold October night. 
as light and rain began to fall, the uh, these guys took off their their what was called hunting frocks. It's like a I don't know what you call it now, like a almost like a parka, and uh, and they wrapped it around their rifles. They took it off their bodies, which was keeping them warm, and wrapped it around their rifles to make sure that their rifles would be dry. The powder in their rifles would be dry, and and they would fire when they needed them to. <clears throat> you got to remember, these guys, they didn't have Gore-Tex or nylon or anything like that. When it rained, they got wet. There wasn't, there wasn't anything that was waterproof back then. Maybe... Uh, maybe oil skins, something like that. That's where you would take a canvas and impregnate it with oil, uh, whale oil or seal oil, and uh, and that would uh, uh, shed water. But most of these guys didn't have this. You know, they would have uh, wool or animal skins, and not a lot of that. You got to remember, these guys are traveling light. They're traveling light. What's on their backs? Maybe a small pouch. Uh, with uh, jerky and uh, corn and then a uh, bedroll, you know, just that one uh, one blanket rolled up tight. That's what they're carrying. These guys took off their frocks, the, like the parkas they had, wrapped it around their rifles to keep their rifles dry and rode on through the ring. <clears throat> uh, now, although these guys had already uh, ridden about 20-plus uh, miles that day, they still had another 35 miles that they had to go through the night if they were going to overtake Ferguson, and that's what they did. They rode hard through the night, and uh, uh, they they kept going all night. They uh, threw it down the, the trails, the muddy roads, um, and they didn't stop to eat, to rest, nothing. And on the morning of the 7th, they crossed the Broad River at uh, what's called the Cherokee Ford. Now the skies began to clear. The uh, the skies began to clear. The sun started to come out, and and it began to to lift the spirits of the militiamen as the as the uh, forward group continued to ride east. They learned from folks along the trail, along the route they were driving, that, that Ferguson uh, was encamped a little ways ahead, atop Little King's Mountain. This was a promontory that was rising about 50, 60 feet or so above the, the surrounding terrain. And in the open area at the top was an oblong, maybe a few hundred yards in length, and narrowing from like a 120 to, to 60 yards across. And the sides of the, of the mountain were covered with trees and rocks. And Ferguson had selected a campsite on top of the mountain, believing that the high ground afforded him a military advantage uh, in if, should the Patriot militia end up catching up to him. And uh, later on it was reported that he declared to his men that he was on King's Mountain, that he was king of the mountain, and that God Almighty could not drive him from it. And, uh, and his confidence in the, the, the strategy of this was getting ready to be tested. 
the Patriots, the uh, the uh, forward group, the 900 Patriots, rode on quietly toward the mountain. The uh, the ground was softened by the rain. There was an you weren't seeing that you weren't hearing a the thuds of the hoof, the horse's hooves, or you weren't certainly weren't getting any kind of a adjust that you might normally have gotten from 900 horses moving uh, moving along. <clears throat> the militia ended up stopping in the woods. They dismounted and tied their horses, and then they very quickly began to surround the mountain before the sentries could see them, could see the advancing force. The Patriot militia encircled the mountain as Ferguson, who now alerted to their presence, mounted his horse and signaled orders to his loyalist troops with, uh, by blowing, he had this silver whistle around his neck, kind of like a, almost like a fox hunting whistle. Uh, and began to blow the whistle and uh, and yell orders at the troops. Now, one of the things about the Battle of Kings Mountain is that Ferguson was the only British soldier in the battle. The only British soldier, uh, the only regular soldier of either side involved in this battle. That's Ferguson. All the rest of his men were loyalists. These were colonials who were still loyal to King George. Continued uh, their advance. On all sides of King Mountain, King's Mountain, uh, and while they're doing this, they were they were giving the the loyalists the they were giving them the 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 Indian, uh, doing the Indian game on them, that's uh, yelling, whooping loudly, and firing from the cover of the trees and the rocks. Now, Ferguson thought he was protected on top of the mountain by the trees and rocks, when in actuality prevented him from, it allowed the militia, to continue to advance on him without his men being able to get a good shot at them. Uh, they weren't advancing in ranks. They weren't standing out in the open with big targets painted on, painted on them in red uniforms or, or anything like that. They were dressed in the, the mottled uh, gray and brown uh, wood-colored clothing. And uh, a couple of guys uh, you know, would whoop and yell uh, and take a shot uh, from one area. When they did that, the guys from another area would dash forward to another tree or rock up ahead, and they would do the same thing. And when they did it, uh, the other guys would dash forward. And they were using cover and concealment and, and fire and movement uh, to work their way uh, up into close quarters with the loyalists. And uh, this was this battle was Americans fighting Americans. Now. Fortunately, uh, for the for the Patriot militia, the loyalists who were shooting downhill with their brown vests, they were they weren't taking into account the fact that they were shooting downhill. So 
apparently a great many of them, uh, you know, they knew that to make a, a certain distance shot, they were having to aim high uh, in order to get the ball to arc to its target. Well, that's not really the case when you're shooting downhill. Travel's a lot truer in its ballistic tra- track. So with them aiming high, they kept shooting over the heads of the the advancing uh, Patriot militia. And uh, unfortunately for the militia, the Loyalists had bayonets. Now, in Ferguson's order, the Loyalists moved downhill uh, in an organized attack with bayonets fixed. They charged downhill. Now, to the, to the Patriot militia, this was a pretty fearsome sight because... Uh, because the Patriot militia didn't have bayonets. You know, they were they were shooters. Uh, and to reload really close to close to a good, you know, 25, 30 seconds to a minute to make a good reload on there. You know, close to close to a minute with uh, with rifle barrels. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, they, they didn't have any choice, but whenever uh, Ferguson's men uh, in groups uh, attacked them or charged them, they had to retreat. They didn't have a whole lot of choice. Now, when the Loyalists reached the bottom of the hill, they stopped pursuing the Patriots and they returned to the top. Now, to the credit of the Patriot militia, they didn't accept their retreat as a defeat. <laughs> All around the the mountain, the Patriot militia, uh, though they were repelled by the bayonet charges, uh, as soon as they as soon as they were pushed off the slopes, and Ferguson's men returned to the top, well they they advanced back up the mountain, and uh, and shot time and time again with their hunting rifles, and they shot. Uh, loyalist after loyalist after loyalist. Now, on the third assault, the Patriots uh, ended up on the mountain, and the Patriots pressed forward, uh, encircling the loyalists at the northeast end of the promontory. If you look at it from the uh, like from the top, as you're looking at it, it, it looked almost like a like a, a like a footprint, and uh, the Patriots had pushed the uh, the Loyalists all the way to the end of it. Now Ferguson, by this point, he knew he he knew this was the end. He knew it was defeat. He knew he was going to be captured. Uh, he got on his horse and he galloped. Uh, madly galloped toward the Patriot line, uh, hoping to escape by by smashing through it, slashing his way through it. Uh, but one of the 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 militiamen, the Patriot militiamen, uh, took aim with his rifle and shot Ferguson uh, right. To, through the chest, right below his neck. When he fell out, Ferguson's boot caught in the stair, and 
the horse dragged the body uh, all around the top. The horse was, was, of course, was was freaked out by the shooting and by uh, you know having a body dragging on it, and uh, it kept running. And as it's running around uh, between six and uh, and a dozen more patriots. Uh, fired into the body as it went by them. Uh, a lot more than that claimed to have done so. A lot more folks claimed to have shot old Ferguson as he went uh, dragging by. Now, with Ferguson dead, the loyalist resistance quickly evaporated. Ferguson's second command ordered his troops to surrender. However, over the next few minutes, uh, chaos and confusion was still running rampant uh, across the battlefield as the Patriot militia, who were still red hot uh, and remembering the brutality shown to their their comrades in a lot of the past confrontations, including uh, the Battle of Waxhaws, they continued firing into the ranks of the loyalists. Finally, Isaac Shelby took charge and and regained control of the situation. The defeated loyalists stacked their weapons and became prisoners of the Patriots. Now, the remainder of the afternoon and the evening, the men on both sides tended to the wounded and buried the dead in, in shallow graves. Ferguson who made a a bold declaration uh, that that he would never leave King's Mountain. Uh, he fulfilled his declaration. He didn't leave King's Mountain. Uh, he was buried uh, right there on top of the battlefield, not far from where he'd been shot out of his saddle. His uh, his grave is still there on the top of King's Mountain. Uh, the uh, the the dead uh, the dead were hastily buried, but but many weren't buried at all. Uh, some just had uh, leaves and branches uh, thrown onto them. The uh, the site became uh, it, it became uh, horrific. I mean, people, the 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 relatives of the uh, of the dead. Uh, a lot of them came to try and claim their loved ones' bodies, but there were still hundreds of dead bodies uh, laying out in the open for for weeks. Uh, and more to come. Uh, it's even said that uh, that they ended up, uh, a lot of the folks living nearby ended up killing a lot of their own uh, farm animals like the hogs and even some of their own pets like dogs. Ended up killing them all because they felt that, that those hogs and dogs they did at... Kings Mountain, and they knew for a fact that the 
the dead have been fair for the wolves uh, for about a month. Uh, nobody wanted to ride near it because uh, wolves uh, uh, in large numbers have been gathering there to eat the dead. <clears throat> the uh, After the battle, the victorious Patriot militia encumbered by the prisoners, made their way back toward Gilbert Town. Now, along the way, uh, the militia demanded retribution against some of the loyalists they had captured. Uh, on October 14th, the uh, militiamen held a speedy trial and condemned 30 of the men to death or atrocities committed against them, their friends, their kin. Nine of the Tories were hanged from a tree at the Bigger Staff's plantation before Colonel Shelby stopped the slaughter. Over the next several days, the Patriots turned to their homes. The over-mountain men recrossed the Appalachian Mountains. Colonel Benjamin Cleveland and Major Joseph Winston took charge of the prisoners, and uh, riding down the Yadkin Valley, the Patriots, under their command, delivered the captured loyalists to the Moravian settlement at uh, Bethbera, where the captives were imprisoned in a stockade. Uh, I'm sure they didn't fare well. Uh, no prisoners during the American Revolutionary War, and most wars after did not fare well as prisoners. Uh, in the American Revolutionary War, you were more than ten times more likely to die battlefield. <clears throat> Word of Ferguson's death and of the complete defeat at King's Mountain shocked and and completely disheartened uh, General Cornwallis. With the losses of one-third of his army, and one of his most talented officers, Cornwallis delayed the planned advance northward from Charlotte into North Carolina, uh, abandoning the supply wagons, which were at this time in the rainy season were were mired, uh, axle deep, and being harassed by pursuing Patriot militia. The British Army retreated to Winsboro, South Carolina and made the winter camp there. So, so Cornwallis never finished his advance uh, into North Carolina. Because of Ferguson's defeat, uh, he ended up uh, abandoning his march into North Carolina. He retreated back into South Carolina and there camped for the winter. The Patriot victory at Kings Mountain had quite a few other effects as well. No longer could the British depend on the American loyalists in the Carolina Piedmont area to flock eagerly to the British standard. They saw what had happened to their uh, to their buddies who had done so, right? I'm sure that they thought, uh, look, the the British Army is so strong and and uh, so steadfast. Uh, we're going to flock to them, 
We are going to show these rebel dogs uh, what they're going to get because of that, because of the mindset that they had, that they were that they were going to win, uh, and they had complete faith in it, and they had no qualms uh, in doing bad things, in, in actually in engaging in horrible and criminal behavior uh, because they figured they would win. And, you know, the winners write the history books. They figured that uh, they could do whatever they wanted because they're going to they're going to win, and then uh, and then to Hades with these uh, with these rebels. But that's not what happened. Instead, the whole group of them were defeated in battle. Uh, a huge number of them killed, and the account that uh, I just gave you is a very uh, a very scrubbed clean with Dawn dishwashing liquid account. Uh, like I was telling you earlier, there, there is no clean, no... Uh, the, the warfare is ugly. It's ugly. It's horrible. It's nasty. Uh, and the Battle of King's Mountain was horrible. Uh, the the cries of the wounded, uh, the the slaughter, uh, the loyalist militia, the the rotting of the bodies for weeks and months afterwards. Uh, years later, people were still passing by King's Mountain. They were still giving it a wide berth uh, because of the thousands of bones littering the. Uh, the volley floor there. Uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure it was horror. <clears throat> and because of this, the the loyalists were no longer eager uh, to commit the atrocities that they were committing. They were no longer eager uh, to join the, uh, under the British standard, and they, they they no longer thought that they were going to be protected by it. So the patriot spirit, however, in the Carolinas was invigorated. And uh, the British Southern campaign had built, been dealt uh, a substantial defeat, a substantial blow. Now, the additional conflicts uh, on Carolina battlefields will be needed uh, in the coming year to secure America's independence. These would be the 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 but the battle of King's Mountain was was a huge turning point in the American Revolution. No to me, the Battle of King's Mountain it was no different than uh than the uh than the battles of uh uh Princeton uh were to the American Revolutionary War. Uh, the uh, 42 years later, Thomas Jefferson recalled that battle as the joyful annunciation turn of the tide of success which terminated the Revolutionary War. And of course, uh, Washington's Continental Army 
had been fighting valiantly for five and a half years, uh, though without any decisive effect, yet only 12 months and 12 days after the Battle of Kings Mountain, Cornwallis would surrender his British Army to General Washington at Yorktown, Virginia. And the American Revolution would soon be over. Pretty much after after Cornwallis' surrender, now the war continued on uh, for another two years, but it, it wasn't much of a war. It was it was more jockeying for a position to end the war. Uh, the for all intents and purposes, after uh, after Yorktown, the war was was over. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that two folks killed and wounded in the battles after Yorktown. I'm sure that's no consolation. I'm sure they don't want to hear me say that, but. The the Battle of Kings Mountain, to me, is uh, is just a, a an amazing battle. It is the uh, and without a doubt the uh, one of the major turning points of the war. <laughs> All right, uh, you got another caller here. Uh, Area code 505, you're on there. Yeah, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Who's this? Uh, this is Captain Rob back in uh, New Mexico. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How about yourself, sir? Excellent. Um, this Battle of Kings Mountain kind of set things up for Cowpens and uh, Nathaniel Green's boys to kind of like lead everybody back to Yorktown, didn't it? Absolutely it did. Absolutely it did. Without the Battle of Kings Mountain, number one, the, the Battle of Kings Mountain, uh, it shifted the balance of power. So like I said, no longer, because when when people think of the American Revolutionary War, they think of, mainly they think of uh, Redcoats and the American Colonial Forces. Redcoats and Bluecoats on the battlefield uh, lined up in, uh, you know, lines facing each other and and, you know, charge and bayonet and cannon and stuff like that. That's how they think of the American Revolutionary War. Yet that was not how the majority of the war was fought. The majority of the war was fought by by, by people who knew each other. They were fighting each other, fighting against each other, militiamen and loyalists. And this changed the balance of power uh, in the Carolinas there. No longer were the, were the forces that Cornwallis needed uh, flocking to to the British flag, they just weren't. They uh, they could see what was getting ready to happen as clearly as anybody else. And you know, anytime you have a shift in power like this, that makes the people who were you know who were on the fence or hiding under the cover say, okay, uh, now I'm going to jump on the wagon. Now I'm going to now that I see we're winning, I'm 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 in for the win. And uh, and they started signing up, and they started flocking together. And and the folks that were that would end up begin to end up fighting uh, the battles that you're talking to, especially the battle like Cowpens, uh, were learning during this this period. They were learning from the battles that were being fought 
and uh, and they would apply those lessons uh, very uh, very effectively at uh, Cal Pens and Monmouth, and finally at uh, uh, at Yorktown and Saratoga. I mean, not Saratoga at, at Yorktown, and uh, and like I said, that would be that would end up being. Uh, the the end of the war. Well, you know, you, you look at some of the previous battles by Francis Marion. Well, I wouldn't even say battles. Constant skirmishing by Francis Marion there in the swamps in the south, and uh, and constant harassment uh, provided you know the British with no relief and and constant losses at a. Uh, uh, at, at a constant rate that, uh, you know, gradually weakened their forces that, uh, you know, I don't think they, you know, by the time King's Mountain came around, they could muster um, all that many, hence uh, Tarleton's exaggeration of his forces. Right, right. And you have, uh, as you, as the troops march away from their supply point, as their supply lines lengthen, then... They get weaker as they go, especially if the local populace can't be counted on, if the local populace becomes uh, dangerous. If folks like Marion uh, and the rest of the uh, militia, if they continue to harass and raid the uh, supply lines going to the, uh, the forces as they march away from their supply point, the coast, and then if the local population is dissuaded from joining them. Because at first, the a, a great deal of the folks in the South were loyalists, and they were on uh, under the flag. But then you had two things. You, know, you had, the, you had the, the ugliness of the war as it's being waged by, by people who, who are not fighting uh, as... Uh, as just one troops, you know they're fighting as uh, well. The the loyalists were committing uh, criminal acts over and over and over. The more criminal acts they committed, the more folks who may have been undecided or may have even been loyalists in the beginning, the more criminal acts they they committed. Uh, burning people's homes, uh, killing, raping, murdering, then the larger the force that they, that begins to assemble to oppose them, and uh, and eventually the folks like Marion and I think a lot of people don't they don't give uh, Marion as much credit as he deserves for having such a small group of folks and yet uh, causing uh, such major disturbances uh, and, uh, and having such a great effect uh, on the war, he deserves a lot more credit than he gets. But, but he's almost as, as shadowed and camouflaged in, in the historical recounts uh, as he was during the war. And you just don't hear that much about him. Yeah, it's uh, he's he's kind of a mysterious figure in a lot of ways. Uh, of course, I remember the old uh, Disney Swamp Fox, but 
uh, it's a tribute to the people, I think, at the time. You said that 1,800 people uh, gathered together in militia, um, and they didn't have much in the way of, you know, of major officers. I mean, the generals weren't around and, and the rest of that. By the time they decided to send the 900 uh, after Cornwallis and those boys, uh, pretty much um, uh, says a lot for American spirit. Right, and you 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 saw how they were selected, right? They were selected yeah, by their marksmanship. Marksmanship, yeah. They got well, the nine hundred best in shots. The, uh, yeah, and best best comment in the uh, I, I made in the uh, forum there was that uh, imagine if Ferguson, with his breech loading rifle, had been accepted uh, in the Empire beforehand. There, um, how different things could have been. Um, and the fact that he was buried on uh, King's Mountain pretty much uh, spelled the end of the empire in a lot of ways. Right. Well, I think that uh, one of the things that people don't realize, too, is that uh, there's another story that uh, that uh, you don't hear much, but uh, during the uh, uh, during the early days of the war, earlier on, uh, it just so happened that uh, Ferguson happened to be within rifle shot of Washington, and Ferguson, as I said, was, was 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 suspected to be the best shot in the British Army. He was in within rifle shot of Washington. However, Washington was riding away, and Ferguson thought that it was uncivil to shoot someone in the back. And he didn't shoot Washington. But he was within rifle shot and the shot that he could have made. That was a... I don't think at, the, I don't think at the time that he knew that it was Washington, but but it turns out that it was. Um, funny how, uh, you know, we, we, we pushaw the uh, divine intervention issue, but... Uh, you know, we uh, we escaped by the skin of our teeth too many times. Well, I absolutely believe that. And, you know, you can look. There's a book, uh, which is one of the first books I read whenever I, when I started reading about the American Revolutionary War uh, way back when, when I first got together with Appleseed back in 2006. And... Uh, called uh, Almost a Miracle. And uh, that's one of the things that uh, that it discussed. And and the whole book was pretty much dedicated to that, that, that time and time again that we should have lost the battles that we should have lost, the men that should have, that shouldn't have made it, the, the money that never should have been there, on and on and on. It's not just one thing, and it's not just... Uh, it, it was too many. It was so many things, all the way from uh, uh, from the very beginning, from the moon, yeah, watching, from, uh, the moon rising in a different place, uh, as Paul Revere rode across the, the back bay. You know, this is re- this is uh, uh, recounted not just from Revere, but from uh, from a, a large number of sources that record that the moon rose in a different place that night. Because it did, Revere, when he was rowing across, 
the back bay was actually shadowed uh, by the man of war. The moon was coming up behind it so that the shadow fell upon him, and uh, he couldn't be seen. Well, uh, riding under the bow of the renown wasn't exactly uh, great wisdom on his part. Yeah. I mean, on and on, uh, that we should never, it should never have come about, but it did. But we did. And uh, I think it's a great book. You can search it out and, and get it. It's called Almost a Miracle. I don't remember who it's by. Uh, if you want to read my copy, you'll have to dig around in Fred's uh, library because I, I left it there with him. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Scout. Hey, thank you. How are things going in New Mexico right now? Uh, great. Got finished with uh, the Weddington Boy Scout shoot uh, last weekend. Uh, had a lot of fun. Um, even got a chance to take a crack up at that white buffalo. Uh, wow. Up on the Weddington. Yeah, 1,130 yards away. I smacked it. No kidding. Yeah, wow. one, shot, one shot from the old Springfield 03, but uh, mainly thanks to listening to Dope from uh, two better shooters than me uh, right, who, right. Were, uh, who were arranging on it and, and making their adjustments. And I just took advantage of... Uh, of watching the environmentals for 20 minutes uh, and and listening to their calls on things. So I got a good education that part, and it paid off in one whack. Well, congratulations, man. Well, Well, like I said, I figured I'd better pack it up right after that shot and save the rest of my luck for the (laughs) drive home. You want to leave? You want to leave with a win, man. Leave with a win. Well, thanks yep. for calling in, Captain, and uh, and best to you and yours there in New Mexico. Keep carrying on, powder dry, you know, keep your nose in the wind, uh, and just, say hello yeah, to everybody. I want to say hi to my, my southern friends down there that uh, made me a rifleman, and, uh, and even the friends over there in eastern New Mexico, some people call it Texas. <laughs> All right. Thanks, brother. You take care. Take care, buddy. All right. Uh, I want to uh, thank everybody for listening tonight. Uh, I had a good time. I love, uh, I know a lot of times history shows are uh, get lower listening, but uh, I'd love to do it anyway. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, take care. Remember, we got the combat carbine course coming up. Uh, precision rifle sniper course, uh, squad school, combat tracking courses at uh, BattleRoadUSA.com. We'll see you guys uh, next week, same time, same place. Uh, Until then, uh, God bless and keep you all.
Dragging who we need You call this liberty 